This is the Be God's Light podcast with Ben Greenbaum and Mark Elsesser. And here in 2024, we're diving into the Old Testament for a look at how God has been at work from the very beginning. And today, Ben, we're up to Genesis chapter 6. This is our third week of this. And the story changes to a man named Noah. It's an iconic story. I, I would say that even people who aren't believers or people of faith will, at least in the West, know about Noah. They're, you know, it, it, the little children's books and pictures and you know, the little boat with giraffes and lions and tigers and everything hanging off the edge seems to be a, a main, main part of that. So uh, that story is around and with us for, for all times. You come from New Orleans, but flooding th- has been a thing there. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah intimately familiar uh, with flooding. Did you build an ark? No, but it would have helped. I did uh, post Katrina watch people um, launch boats off of what at one point were just uh, little overpasses uh, onto uh, areas where I used to play football. And so that was a little bit surreal watching that occur. But uh, down south, we are definitely familiar with floods. Of course, New Orleans um, is uh, under uh, sea level. It's like 12 feet under sea level. There is an area within New Orleans called the Metairie Ridge that's above sea level. And then where I grew up, I think our houses had to be, I grew up on the North shore of Lake Pontchartrain. New Orleans is on the South shore of Lake Pontchartrain. And we were just about 10 feet or so, 12 feet where, where my house was above sea level. And I think our house had to sit at 13 feet above sea level. So the house that we owned was actually on uh, stilts. It was raised off the ground. Um, Though we never had flooding uh, on our street, though I lived two blocks off of Lake Pontchartrain growing up and the uh, yeah, the waters were known to breach the seawall. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, so I mean, it's a, it's a scary thing. Obviously, it is when it happens. And fewer it, things are more destructive than water. Yeah, with Katrina, we we watched it at least even even from afar. The, those of us who live here watched it, and it was frightening. It was frightening. So this story that is told in in the book of Genesis, I mean, it had to be horrific. Obviously, for those who drowned in it, but even for those watching, Noah and his family who were in this big old boat watching it, it must have been horrifying to see. So a lot of times this story sort of glossed over because it's, again, it's kind of cute. We see Noah and, and he's in a boat and there's some animals sticking their heads out and there's a rainbow and it all looks really nice. But the story's far from lovely. It's that's in here. So let's dive right into it and look at the reason for the flood. It's the, the human condition. It's in Genesis chapter six, and I'll start with verse one. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any one of them they chose. All right, let's let's just not bypass this strange little sentence that's here. Sons of God marrying the daughters of earth, daughters of people, 
Uh, do you, what do you make of this thing? Anything? I don't know. I, I've heard different stories, different theories on this. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it or worrying about it uh, or even wondering about it very much. It, it is amazing to me, though. I, I heard the other day that uh, Nephilim was trending on Twitter. Oh, is that right? Yeah, crazy enough. And so th- this these verses, which, I mean, honestly, are fairly inconsequential to the overall narrative, get so much airtime, um, maybe because of the Lord of the Rings or something. But I, yeah, the way I, there's, there's two basic interpretations as I know them um, relative to the sons of God. And so some interpret that as angels, others such as myself, um, interpret that most likely referring to kings and to rulers and to leaders um, and seeing it through that lens. And as we digest this little small piece of the narrative, you know, Nephilim itself means fallen ones. And I get how some people relate that to angels as we consider Satan um, to, to himself have been fallen. Uh, and yet I think it's more reference to the sin that's present. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you as well on that. I don't give this a lot of thought because the story is so much greater. Let's go on in verse three. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Of course, this is only Genesis six. So we saw in the first few chapters that God limited their days. And now he says, clearly, their days will be 120 years. That's sort of the, the top end that people will be living after this time period. And, and of course, I don't know anybody that's 121. Uh, who's the oldest person that, I think in one of my first churches, we had a woman that was 103 or four or something like that. And she was still living alone. It was pretty incredible wow. up until her, up until her death. But I, that's 120 would be a pretty good run, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my family genetics, that ain't happening, but, um, and, and I, I, yeah, I can't even fathom living that many years or even in some ways longing to, uh, all in God's time, I suppose. I did know somebody though, that lived to 108 and was still like mentally with it and, uh, just amazing, amazing. Yeah. You know, one of the, my, one of the things my parents said when they lived to be late eighties, then my dad ended up dying at, at 95 years old, my mom at 89. But the, it, one of the hardest parts was to outlive all of their friends. If you lived to 108, you're outliving your friends and your kids and your kids' friends. Right. <laughs> I mean, That's exactly you're, right. Yeah. You're, you're just living a super, a super long time. And can you imagine, like in this political season that we're in right now, if um, <laughs> politicians found out that we were going to start living to 120, what that might do to Social Security? <laughs> and so they, they would say, oh, no. Hey, hey, I'll tell you, with, with uh, modern advanced Western medicine, with so many people living longer uh, nowadays, one of the things that I've actually persistently heard from those living into their 90s was how they were outliving their retirement. Yeah, you know, deal. Which, because uh, as one guy told me who's, who's passed away now, but he lived to be 98, and he said, I had no clue. He's like, I thought I'd be gone at 85. 
I wasn't prepared for this. <laughs> Get a bunch of houses and reverse mortgage them or something. I don't know. How that's going to... <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> so maybe we're far afield. You can see uh, Mark Elsesser for all your financial planning needs as well. <laughs> yeah, that would be g- genius of you. Verse five, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. There's a lot of things here. <laughs> every inclination, only evil all the time. That, that's a little hyperbole perhaps, but God's looking at this and saying, they're messed up. Like, and this wasn't, this, again, it's Genesis 6. It's not deep, deep, deep into it. I mean, it's, there's, there's some generations that had passed, certainly, but it, didn't take, it doesn't take long for people to forget who God is and to do their own thing any way they want to do it and just say, this is how I'm going to live, take it or leave it, God. And the verse six says, the Lord regretted. That's a big word. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. What do you, what do you, when you look at those verses, what do you make of them? I mean, those couple of verses, like God's looking at this human condition and he's, he's regretting it. He's, he's sad about it. Yeah. And I I think that's where, I think that, that term there, um, the Hebrew word there that is translated in some Bibles as regret might be better translated, even grieved to, to the words that you just expressed that he experiences this deep sorrow over the evil of those created in his image who are created uh, in his image um, to, to live in relationship with him, to live in relationship with one another. And yet the world, rather than being defined by the goodness of God's creation, the world has become defined uh, by mankind's evil, and which is inherent in, in all the language that we see here. I mean, even again, Nephilim, which means fallen ones, is representative of the, the sin that is so existent. And so the beauty of God's creation um, is, is at peak brokenness because of the sin of, of his created ones. So verse, verse 7, so the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created. And with them, the animals, the birds, and creatures that move along the ground, for I regret or grieve that I have made them. The, re- the result of this was that God said, we're, we're doing a do-over. And they don't get it. I don't, it really wasn't um, the giraffe's fault, but they were going to go. Or the, the birds or the, the creatures. Or, or the unicorns. I saw a cartoon, you know, where Noah's looking down and, and the lions and tigers had eaten the unicorns. <laughs> And he said, well, so much for the unicorns. From now on, all the carnivores go to deck six. <laughs> so, um, so, I mean, it still wasn't their, it wasn't their fault, right? It wasn't. But, and, uh, you know, was every human being that evil? Well, I mean, it kind of what it says, but it's just, it's going to be this do-over in life for, for creation. And it, it's, 
if you stop there in the story, it's sad. I mean, it's picked up in verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So again, it's, it's telling the story of, of evil and corruption and the, even the hearts and thoughts of people were bad. And God wanted to start over. Yeah, and even, as we will see, with Noah and his family, um, you know, who God defines and, and states as righteous, that righteousness really being born of his relationship with God and not necess- it doesn't point to um, Noah as being sinless because a hot second after he, you know, they bolt off the ark, we see that there's still, the depravity has not gone away. He wasn't exempt from it. Yeah. So when the Bible says, you know, much, much later, that all have sinned, it includes Noah and, and his family. They weren't perfect. However, it does say in verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Then in verse 13, so God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. That's the bad news. And he says to Noah, so make yourself an ark, a big boat of cypress wood. Is it cypress or cypress? Cypress wood. That's what we say down in South Louisiana. We got cypress trees, cypress stumps, there's cypress everywhere. Cypress is all over? Yeah. I've never had a cypress tree. You never seen one? I've never had one. My my brother, he'll appreciate this. He doesn't listen to the podcast anyway. He'll probably listen to this one though. But my (laughs) my brother one time when we were out fishing, there's cypress stumps in the water. And uh, we were out fishing and my dad allowed my, my brother to guide to navigate the boat. And he ran us up on a cypress stump. And after that, my dad nicknamed him stump. (laughs) (laughs) And so I can't read this without thinking about Andy hitting the cypress stump. And then after that forevermore, dad just called him stump. Maybe it was a stump because that tree was used to build the ark. Well, it's not a stump. It's cypress knees. Actually, that's what they call them because it's like the root system. This is crazy. Talk about a tangent. The, the cypress tree the root system has pieces that come up through the ground that we call cypress knees. And that's really what Andy ran up on was the cypress knee. But calling somebody knee versus stump, the, yeah, it's not as stump good. Too. You call him yeah. stump, yeah. right? Yes. <laughs> so stump's not going to listen to this? No, probably not. Probably not. Yeah. This isn't in the range of his podcast listening, probably. But uh, I'll tell him to. He'll listen to it if I ask him to. If he, but be, be careful because we're going to get to sibling rivalry here in a week or two. So I mean, oh. you know, if he starts listening now, you know. Yeah, and he'd have some some real good commentary on that, especially seeing as when we were younger and I was managing a pizza restaurant, I fired him not once but twice from it. <laughs> okay, why'd you rehire him after you fired him? Because he was your brother. He's my brother, and my mom was not happy with me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm looking forward to back, the uh, sibling yeah, rivalry discussion. Noah, holy cow. Well, let's come back. To, let's come back to the old Cypress stump that's here. Uh, so, verse 14, God said, "Make yourself an ark of cypress." That's how you can say it, folks. Cypress wood. Make room 
make rooms in the ark and coat it with pitch inside and out, and then he gives some instructions for, for how to build it. And, and says down in verse 17, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Again, he, he says this over and over, everything on the earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you. This word covenant is, has been used a couple of times in the Old Testament. There's the Abrahamic covenant and the Noahic covenant. There's a, a few more that are to come down the road. What can you just off the cuff tell us about covenant and the difference between Abrahamic covenant and Noahic covenant? I'm, I'm doing this because you That's are funny. look so scholarly today. Oh. It must be the uh, LSU pullover it I is, have on. No that, doubt. That's, that says academia right there. Are you grieving the loss of Nick Saban? Am I grieving from uh, you know, his retirement? Well, I don't know. I yeah, mean, he was at LSU in the past, too. He was. But, I mean, every LSU fan, while they are uh, perpetually born to despise him, also realizes that absent Nick Saban, LSU is not the program that it is today. Because oh. he did. He resurrected the program. He won that first of three national titles uh, under the current uh, BCS. Um, I wonder if he, now that he's available, he can go to Purdue because we could use a national championship. <laughs> Good luck, bro. <laughs> um, there's not enough money in the world. Man, what were we talking about? I have no idea. It's Covenant. Oh, Covenant. Yeah, Covenant. Sorry. Golly. Yeah, the one thing to, to be aware of uh, within the um, within the, the Old Testament, because to your point, Covenant comes up constantly. And so you really have the Edemic Covenant. You have the Noahic Covenant. You got Abrahamic Covenant, Mosaic Covenant, Davidic Covenant. You got Covenant, Covenant, Covenant. One of the things that we have to be aware of when we look at the covenant, and what I encourage people to do as you read through the Old Testament, is look at what aspects of these covenantal relationships are unconditional and which ones are conditional. Because like the, the Noahic covenant, it, there's an unconditional aspect to it, as we'll see. In fact, it's unconditional. The Abrahamic covenant, unconditional covenant. It's God's promise to them, not conditioned on man's response. The Mosaic Covenant is different. The Mosaic Covenant is more contractual. It's more, it's more conditioned based upon uh, God's promise to bring the people into the land, which there's an unconditional aspect there, but their ability to stay in the promised land is conditioned on their obedience. And so that's where when we're looking at the covenantal language, looking at the aspects that are unconditional and conditional, and uh, as we just kind of bridge into um, the old te- the covenants we see in the Old Testament, that's my first thought. What makes what makes the one with Noah unconditional? We're not be- because it's several chapters. We won't cover the entire flood narrative in this single podcast. So jump ahead. And- the 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 promise that we see given uh, to Noah is that God will never mm-hmm. basically wipe humanity out again. There will mm-hmm. never be another. What I, what I understand the narrative to say universal flood and God's reminder uh, to us of that, of course, is the rainbow yeah. uh, itself. And so when we see the rainbow after a good rainstorm and the sun blossoms out and creates the, the uh, 
you know, what is it? Light refraction that creates the beauty of the rainbow. Um, there we are, uh, we are reminded of God's unconditional promise to Noah, because the mistake would be to think that things are just better than what they were in Noah's time. Uh, because as you said earlier, you know, depravity is just a reality. Uh, um, it's, it's an aspect of the human condition. Um, we are all depraved. We're all in need of, uh, God's, um, intervention, which is what we see here. And with the, the flood and we see here with Noah's, we see God's gracious intervention as he preserves, uh, the life of Noah and his family who he declares righteous. And that righteousness is really uh, more of a declarative statement about Noah because he walks with God. And so it's almost a righteousness credited to Noah because of his relationship uh, with God, even as we, as we see in the narrative that Noah still has some issues. But it's God's goodness, God's righteousness. That's so right. when we see that rainbow, it's a reminder of that. Well, let's come back to the story Again, we're in verse 18 of chapter 6. God says to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives. Very small group of people. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you and be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. And then verse 22, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. That, that single little verse, Ben, I, mm-hmm. I, I look at that and I think, man, that's, that's a powerful verse because you, you got to think about this. Like You're building this massive ark and the, the Dimensions are given, it's, it's given in cubits, but it's translated into, into English. It's 450 feet long. It's a football and a half field long. This is, a, this is not like a rowboat. This is massive. And so he is to undertake this thing. It's going to take him a super long time to build it. And he's to undertake this thing when it's not raining. And he, he is to take it when the animals aren't yet collected. And he, he's, I mean, build it when it's that. And he's to do all this stuff. And when it says, no, he did everything just as God commanded him. That is a powerful statement to, on faith, to say, I'm going to go about this massive task and build this thing and trust God that, that what he said he will do. It's again down in verse chapter 7, verse 5, the exact same phrase. Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Kind of as the theme that repeats throughout this, like God said it, Noah did it. There's something to, to be learned from that, isn't there? Yeah, and it, I mean, I mean in, in the the piece of it is that it's it's representative of God of Noah's existing relationship with God. You know, he he is someone who is in, in essence uh, a man after God's own heart, someone who has walked with God while the rest of humanity has walked away and has completely rebelled uh, against God. And then we see this image of Noah's faithfulness. 
this representative uh, image of Noah's faithfulness in his obedience to God's commands down to the very, you know, cubit um, to where he is uh, not just building the ark, but building the ark as specified by God. And that's one of the other things that we see throughout the, the Old Testament. There's a lot of times where we understandably blow through the language that God, as he's instructing Noah to build, he gives them specific dimensions. When the temple is being built later, what does mm-hmm. God do? He gives specific dimensions. And a lot of times we just kind of gloss over that. And yet God has laid out specifics for his people to abide in. And it's not, and, and, and in doing so, they're revealing their obedience, their faithfulness to God's call uh, upon their life. This topic is lifted up in the New Testament when it reflects back on Noah's life. In, in the New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 7, it says, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. So the New Testament looks back at the life of Noah as sort of a picture or a template for a variety of things. Jesus even looked back at Noah in Luke 17 and said, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. That's the return of Christ. Jesus said people were eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage, you know, living life, up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. That is the day Christ comes back. That's a, Christ himself makes a powerful comparison to that day and our day, or the future day, or whenever Christ decides to come back and that we're just going to be living life. We're going to be deciding, you know, do I want to eat out? Do I want to eat in? Do I want to hang out? Do I want to go do some stuff? Do I want to go to work? And then he'll return. And that might be today. That might be, I don't know when it's going to be. You know, I, I had somebody press me the other day, like it was just some guy that I had met. Like, do you think we're in the last days? And I said, I think we've been in the last days for 2000 years. Right. And he didn't like my answer. Um, and you know, I mean, maybe this is the day and maybe it's a thousand years from now. I don't know, but Jesus makes this analogy and compares them together. Uh, What do you see? Like, like as the new Testament reflects back on, on Noah and as we reflect back on Noah, what's the takeaway from the story? We can't get to all of it. Sure. By the way, the, you know, spoiler alert, the flood comes and they, everybody's saved. And they land and repopulate the earth, um, animals and people alike. So we're not going to get to the whole story. But what, what do you see, like, is it our takeaways from New Testament and then also us as New Testament people? Yeah, I mean, a, a couple of things. I think, one, we, um, it, it causes us to take stock of our own life. You know, how am I living in relationship with God? Am I reflecting this, this obedience, this obedience, which is compelled by God's grace to me, that he doesn't treat me as my sins deserve, that the righteousness of Christ has been credited uh, to me. And so how is that redemptive love compelling my life? 
Because one of the things that you see surrounding, uh, obviously, the the narrative here with Noah, as well as the parallel uh, story as, as Jesus draws on Noah to make a point, is that it should root us out of complacency. Um, and for the follower of Christ, it should motivate a little bit of urgency, because we don't know the day or time of Christ's return. Uh, the people in Noah's day were just living life, you know? making much of themselves, living life as they chose, and then boom, this flood comes upon them um, and wipes them out. As we consider the, the second advent, the return of Christ, one of the things that we see in the gospel account is this constant, uh, especially at the back end of the gospels, this uh, message that comes to us from Christ himself, where he encourages us to live uh, commands us really to live with this sense of urgency, to live as if his return is imminent. Mm-hmm, yeah. And and sadly, a lot of times we fall into these places of just apathy or complacency where we begin to prioritize things above and over Christ. We rarely are taking stock of our life, rarely taking stock of how our lives are reflecting Christ, how our lives are, are growing uh, more fully into the image of Christ and how we are revealing Christ to the world. Uh, and I think that that's one of the things, like when, when I read uh, the account of Noah and when I hear the words of Christ, it's how am I making Christ known uh, in this world? Mm. Um, and that, that's, for me at least, that's one of the big, the big takeaways that I, uh, that I draw from this. Yeah, in, in connection with that, Peter in the New Testament writes this in First Peter chapter three, and making this connection, he says that the floodwaters, the water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels authorities and powers in submission to him that this, this story is is a, is a picture and the modern day thing for us is that we need to go to the waters of baptism and we must, we need to run to them. Honestly, we, we are called to live our lives in the, in the death and resurrection, the ascension, the return of Christ that, that is who we are as a people, and only that can save us. As in, as in the story, only the ark saved those eight people. Only Christ's resurrection can save us eternally. Wow, this has been a huge topic today, a good one that we've talked about. We're going to lighten it up next week and talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. How's that sound to you? <laughs> I feel uh, an illness coming on. <laughs> he feels it coming. By next week, he will be uh, unable to speak. We're going to take a look at the lessons to be learned from the story about the city of Sodom. Uh, Folks, if you want to jump in deeper, you can go to our church's website, fishersumc.org, or find the app and click on the Be God's Light link. Until next time, may God bless.